take your seats. Just one thing I didn't mention about France, just want to pay massive respect to Jonathan. He drove all the way from Charles de Gaulle Airport and on the other side of the, the road, the, other, the gears on the other side, all the way down to Laval. It took us about three hours. Then on the Monday we drove back, was possibly the most horrendous journey in history. We got uh, shunted through Paris, which we weren't expecting, and it was chaos. And the vehicle we had had one of those sensors, so as you get nearer things, it beep, beep, beep. And when it goes solid, you know pretty much you've hit something. Well, it went solid on a number of occasions, but we didn't hit something. I don't know how we didn't. And had I been driving, I'd have just stopped the car, got out and burst into tears because it was just... And I, I was the backup driver and I was just terrified. And Jonathan stayed calm and we got there, we got to the airport, it was amazing. And it was the most stressful... I was stressed, so goodness knows what he was doing. So all credit to Jonathan, thank you for driving. Uh, so Jonathan has to come every year. Other folks might change, but he has to come because he's now an established driver. Well, the last few weeks have been just seen some really extreme, some really bizarre and disturbing things, haven't there, in the news. Um, An unrivaled, unparalleled few weeks, I think, in the UK anyway. Last week, many of you will have followed the general election. And uh, we were in France, obviously, and I was determined, no, I'm not going to get drawn into this, you know, on my phone in the dark, in in a little room. I'm going to go to sleep. But I went to sleep and I woke up about every hour and I just couldn't resist checking my phone and, and, and so on, just kind of getting drawn into it to see what the result was. And the result of the election has produced some very strange and unexpected outcomes. And two of which I've been following closely have been the involvement of the DUP in a coalition with the Conservatives and the resignation of Tim Farron as the leader of the Liberal Democrats. Now, I'm not going to make any political comment whatsoever this morning on, on the politics of anybody or the politics of the DUP, or of Tim Farron. But what I think has been really, really interesting, and actually really sobering, I think, has been the way that both members of the DUP, and the DUP as a party, and Tim Farron have been attacked in a really nasty, aggressive way for their Christian faith, and the way in which their the Christian faith and the Bible influences uh, their beliefs. The DUP is not a Christian party, but there are many Christians in it, active Christians, Uh, and they've been aggressively attacked for their opposition to things like abortion and same-sex marriage in in an unparalleled way through the media uh, and and, and other politicians. Tim Farron has decided that he can no longer or or is unable to serve both Jesus and his political party and stating that he didn't believe a person could be a, a committed Christian and lead a political party anymore in the UK. And the religious and the political and cultural climate has really changed here over the last perhaps 10, 20 years in the UK. And often as followers of Jesus, we we struggle to keep pace with cultural changes like this, don't we? Where where just the whole, there's been a real shift in our culture. And the world around us has always been hostile to the gospel. That's a given. But the open hostility towards Christians who are public about their faith in the UK is perhaps something we haven't witnessed in the UK, perhaps for a few hundred years. It's something new for us. It's a kind of new experience for us, uh, for people in the public domain being vilified, being aggressively attacked for the, the Christian views and their faith that they hold. Without wishing to be melodramatic or, 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 or depressing on, on what is a lovely day, and we've just sung a fantastic song about our, our faith in Jesus, but I really do think that we need to get used to the idea that as followers of Jesus, as, as God's people, we will face more and more opposition 
if we're public about our faith and if we're public about following Jesus. And if we're seeking to be active in spreading the good news of Jesus, what we call the gospel message. The word gospel just simply means good news and it refers in the Bible to that package of, uh, of information about God loving us despite our sinfulness, about Jesus uh, coming, uh, God's son coming into this world, dying on the cross, taking the punishment for the wrongdoing that we've done, uh, making it possible for us to be forgiven and made right with God and, and Jesus rising from the dead and us having that ability to be made right with God and have eternal life. And, and, and in uh, a nutshell, that's the gospel. That's this package of good news. And as we are people or people who should be public about sharing that package of good news, the gospel, I think we need to get used to the fact that actually we're going to face increasing opposition. It will become increasingly uh, unacceptable for us to share that publicly. By all means, what you do in private is up to you, but publicly we're going to get more and more uh, opposition, and I think that's something we need to face up to. However, the reality, perhaps for many Christians around the world, and really throughout church history, is that living for God day by day and seeking to spread the gospel, the good news, has always brought persecution. It's always brought mistreatment. It's always brought brought rejection. And so one of the challenges that lies ahead for us in the UK is coming to terms with this new dynamic, this new situation that we find ourselves in. And one of the challenges, I think, is how do we stay faithful to God and continue to preach the gospel message, the good news about Jesus, how do we stay faithful and yet at the same time uh, existing in the culture that we find ourselves in? How do we stay faithful to God and be obedient to the law of the land, submit to the authorities and honour the authorities, which the Bible commands us to do? And how can we also seek to influence those who are in authority to uh, make good laws so that we are free to, to keep practising our faith, free to keep preaching the gospel, spreading the good news, and free to following Jesus. Without open persecution, there's always been objection, there's always been hostility to the gospel, but perhaps we're seeing a shift where there is now open public persecution and opposition to the gospel and to those that uh, would live by it. And the passage that we're looking at today directly deals with this issue. Now, we're looking at Acts 19, 23, right the way through to the end of the chapter and and verse 1 of chapter 20. Over the last few weeks, we've seen how Paul, who was one of the first leaders of the church in the New Testament era called the Apostle Paul. Apostle just means God's special messenger, a sent one from God, uh, one who was given special authority. Paul was the Apostle Paul. How he and his team uh, spread, uh, traveled all over the Roman province of Asia Minor, which, was what, which roughly corresponds to Western Turkey today, and also how they traveled around Greece, and how they traveled and preached this good news. That they told people that God loves them, that Jesus had died for them on the cross, that they could have eternal life, that death was beaten, that Jesus had, had risen again. They, they preached and proclaimed these, these truths. And then they sought to teach those that responded to it, those who put their trust in Jesus. And they spent time teaching and training and equipping them to live for Jesus. And in Acts 19, we saw how Paul spent over two years in Ephesus, a city in what is now Western Turkey. And they spent every, and Paul particularly spent every day preaching and teaching about Jesus. And Acts 19 verse 10 says this, this went on for two years, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia 
heard the word of the Lord. Greek is just a kind of Bible shorthand for all the non-Jews, effectively, all the Gentiles who lived in that province. So, so basically what Luke, who wrote this, is saying is that everybody in the whole of the province of Asia, Western Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. So many, many people listened to the gospel, listened to what Paul was teaching about Jesus, what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be made right with God and have eternal life, and what it means to follow Jesus by day, uh, day by day. And as a result, as they listened and responded, many of them gave their lives to Jesus. Many, many, many people trusted in Jesus and gave their lives to him. They began to follow him, and they in turn then began to share that same package of good news with other people, with their friends, with their work colleagues, with those who lived in the streets around them. So that the whole province of Asia, Luke says, heard the word of the Lord. This was a quite a phenomenal growth period in what is now Western Turkey. And then we saw last week when Ian Smith was here that people saw the supernatural power of Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, the supernatural power uh, where people were set free from demonic oppression and possession and so on. So the, the supernatural power of Jesus was at work. And as a result, Acts 19 verse 17 says this, when this became known, that the supernatural power at work, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who trusted in Jesus had been involved, heavily involved in occult activity, And as they began to follow Jesus, they realized that they had to break completely with their past. And so they gathered all their occult materials and all the writings and stuff that they had, and they burnt it all. And when they did this, this was headline news. Because the value of what they burned would probably be something like five million pounds in today's money. This This was a significant event. They were really taking their new faith seriously. They were completely breaking with the past. Not just burning some old stuff, but burning stuff that was of great value. Perhaps tens of thousands of people trusted in Jesus. Many, many people were responding to the gospel. So it's no wonder that verse 23 says this, In this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So it's all great. It's all fantastic, isn't it? The gospel is being spread. Many, many people are trusting in Jesus and are giving their lives to him. And in Ephesus and that that whole surrounding region of of what is now Western Turkey, many, many people are being impacted by the gospel. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, reading between the lines, are turning from their old lives and are turning to a new life, of embracing what it means to follow Jesus, with Jesus not only as their saviour but as their Lord. But that caused a problem. So let's look at what happened. Let's look at what happens when the, when the gospel spreads, but then reality kind of kicks in. So we're going to read Acts 19, and we're going to read verse 23 verse, uh, down to the end of the chapter and verse 1 of the next chapter. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen as I read it to you this morning. So Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way is just... Uh, a way in which the Bible refers to the church, the early Christians. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There's danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted, all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and, do not, and not do anything rash. Though they have neither, sorry, you brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Lots of great things have been happening. The gospel was spreading. The gospel was powerfully moving. Loads of lives are being transformed. Perhaps tens, tens of thousands of people massively impacting this region. And then verse 23 pops up. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, as I said, the way is one of the ways in which uh, the early church was, was, was referred to, just shorthand really for saying that those who lived God's way or those that followed the way of Jesus. Now, Ephesus contained three key obstacles to the spread of the gospel. Firstly, there was a Jewish colony there, and they opposed the church and they opposed the gospel. They uh, chucked Paul out of the synagogue after a while. And so Paul went to uh, the lecture hall of Tyrannus instead. Secondly, there was the occult. And the occult was very prevalent with people involved in all sorts of demonic and occult activity. And we saw that uh, last week when Ian was here. And then thirdly, many people worshipped this goddess Artemis. And it was the worship of Artemis that the church in Ephesus and the gospel now collided with. Now Artemis, it seems at some point in, in kind of distant history, a meteorite had fallen from space, as, as happens from time to time, and the people in Ephesus, when this, this meteorite landed, believed that this was a god or a goddess from heaven. And it's probable that the meteorite probably looked kind of vaguely resembled some kind of human form, and that this was interpreted as being Artemis. And the people believed that she was the mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto and the twin sister of Apollo, all of which are part of uh, Greek mythology ancient gods in, in, in Greek mythology. Artemis was this many-breasted virgin fertility goddess, and she was worshipped uh, in this massive temple of Artemis, where the worship was conducted by eunuch priests. And here's a picture of what the temple would have looked like. And you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, that's the remains of that massive temple. It was the largest building in the Greek world. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And the remains can still be seen there in Ephesus today. And the people of Ephesus and the whole region were deeply involved in the worship of Artemis. It was part of their cultural identity. It was deeply woven into who they were and into their history and into their culture. To be an Ephesian and not to worship Ephesus just wasn't possible. It, it, the two things just went hand in hand. And 
And so when hundreds and possibly tens of thousands of people in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding area began turning away from worshipping this idol and instead turning to worship the living God, the one true God, the Lord Jesus, it had a massive effect and a real effect on the city and on the whole culture of that city. And one of the groups of people it affected were the craftsmen who made these little miniature shrines, silver shrines of Artemis. They would have been miniature replicas, uh, either of the temple or the part of the temple where Artemis' uh, uh, idol, the, the kind of statue of Artemis stood. And people would, uh, would go and buy them, and then they would take them into the temple, and they would make uh, a kind of offering to Artemis, and they would hope that that would bring them good luck and good fortune and fertility and so on. And some people would take them home and keep them as an idol in the house and pray to them, and, and, and it would be there as a reminder to them about their great goddess that they worshipped. And because so many people were trusting in Jesus and were abandoning their worship of Artemis, the men who made these silver shrines were losing a lot of money. This wasn't just a little bit. This was a significant uh, change uh, in the city. The gospel was beginning to affect them financially, and they weren't happy. And this main silversmith, Demetrius, he managed to whip up all those that worked with him. It seems as if he was the kind of chief guy, and these other people that he employed to work for him making these shrines. So he whips these people up against Paul and against Paul's team, and against the gospel primarily. And he, he played on two clever things. Firstly, he panicked his fellow craftsmen into uh, t- thinking that they're going to lose their business, and they believe that, they fall for that. And of course, that may well have been true. And secondly, he appealed to their cultural and their religious identity, saying that Artemis would no longer be worshipped if people kept on uh, listening to Paul and the team and, and trusting in Jesus. And so these men became furious, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They'd been skillfully manipulated by Demetrius. And whilst this doesn't always happen, it's true that when the gospel advances and when people start trusting in Jesus, opposition often flares up. The gospel comes collides with belief systems and deeply ingrained cultures because the gospel cuts to the very heart of people's identity when people trust in Jesus it changes everything or it should change everything because the trust in Jesus is to make Jesus not only our savior but also our lord it's about submitting to him submitting every area of our lives to him our finances our identity our culture and so trusting in Jesus changes everything it changes what we spend our money on changes how people see themselves. It changes how people view their culture. And that often means that people, when they trust in Jesus, will turn away from things that they uh, perhaps once were culturally normal for them. And they come to realize that although culture in in and of itself can be quite a neutral thing, and there's great things about different cultures, but actually in lots of cultures, there are deeply sinful things, just as there are in our culture in this country. And it changes how people view themselves spiritually, because trusting in Jesus means turning away from the things or the belief systems that people used to trust in. The gospel really does, this package of good news about Jesus really does transform everything, or it should do. It changes everything. And for those who reject the gospel, they will often then resent those who accept the gospel because of the changes they make in their lives. And some of you might have experienced that at work or in in your family when you became a Christian, that suddenly those around you in your family or workplace weren't quite so impressed Maybe that some people were interested and other people were downright hostile. Because it can challenge people and it can make people really feel uncomfortable. It has a real impact on people personally. For the people of Ephesus, Artemis was just part and parcel of who they were. To be an Ephesian was to worship Artemis. And to suddenly find great numbers of people turning away from Artemis to Jesus was deeply unsettling. 
deeply, deeply unsettling for these people, that their cultural, their spiritual identity, who they were, was really threatened. And the same thing will happen today when people trust in Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus and the people in your family and your workplace haven't done, then it can often cause opposition. People will often resent the implication of your new lifestyle. Even if we don't say anything, even if we're not particularly overt in our, in our faith, but we're just simply living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the fact that we cease doing things that we used to do or cease saying things or, or going to certain places or whatever it might look like, and they continue to do that or people around us continue to do that, it can make them feel challenged. It can make them feel convicted and sometimes then become hostile without us even saying anything. We don't have to be overt in our faith just if we stop doing the very things that they hold dear and enjoy doing, people might feel that we're condemning them, even if we don't say anything. They might feel convicted, they might feel uncomfortable, and that can and sometimes does lead to opposition and aggression from people. And without wanting to be depressing, I think we just need to face up to the reality that if we follow Jesus, not everybody around us is going to be excited about that. Some people will be. And some other people in our families or, or, or friends or, or work colleagues will then in turn go on and embrace the same good news and become Christians. And that's what we pray for and live for. But not everybody will. And we need to face up to that. Not everybody is going to be excited when we trust in Jesus or when we talk about Jesus. Those around us will not always like that. They won't always accept that. Paul wrote these words to Timothy. He said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not just being a Christian, but then going on and really seeking to live that godly life. That will mean that we look very different to those around us. And it can often lead to aggression. And, and when the gospel and those who've accepted the gospel run into belief systems like the worship of Artemis, for instance, in Ephesus, and its modern equivalents, whatever they might look like, then we can expect sparks to fly because we're, we're challenging by our very lifestyle and if we're more overt as we share the actual gospel itself, we're challenging right to the very core of people's identity, how they see themselves, how they live, their culture, and that can be deeply unsettling for people. Last week, as I mentioned, a group of us were in France and we were taken to a shrine where Mary was worshipped. That whole building is devoted to the worship of Mary. And these, shrine, these statues are all over this tiny little village. 200,000 people a year, particularly during August, will go. And some of them crawl on their hands and knees to venerate, to worship, to pray to, to trust in this statue, this idol. Hundreds of thousands of people in modern-day Europe worshipping, praying to, trusting in an idol. Idolatry is alive and well. This is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago in Western Turkey. It's alive and well in modern-day, sophisticated Europe, right across the west of France. And 200,000 people go and are involved in the worship here. And in fact, the little village where the shrine is has a number of shops. We only found three shops. And all they sold were miniature idols, uh, miniatures of, of Mary. There was glow-in-the-dark Mary. There was all the way up to dashboard Mary. There was snow globe Mary. There were big figures like this. And, you know, it's a very similar situation, isn't it, to the first century Ephesus? And, in fact, as I was preparing this week, I was just struck by the similarity. People making a living, like these silversmiths were, out of uh, a belief system that doesn't lead people to Jesus, but leads people away from Jesus. Really, really sad. And it's important that we understand this morning what's behind idolatry. And idolatry can take many, many forms. But Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians. He says, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything in itself? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So uh, an idol 
A physical literal idol like this, it's just a lump of wood, it's just a lump of stone, it has no power in and of itself, it's powerless, it has no power, but the power that draws people to worship, to trust in, to pray to, to give their lives over to an idol, or whatever kind of idol that might be, the power that's behind that is demonic. And Paul writes these words to the church in Ephesus, that the very city where uh, Artemis was worshipped, he says, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. As followers of Jesus, as followers of the one true God, we are in a spiritual battle. And the battle may often have a physical side to it, but our battle isn't against people or, or, or physical things as such. It's against the unseen demonic forces that are at work all around us. And in different cultures and in different countries, that, that will manifest itself in different ways. But those unseen demonic forces will seek to influence people. The Bible teaches that Satan and many of the angels rebelled against God at some point back in history. And they were cast out of heaven. And ever since that day, they, 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 they exist, they live to uh, oppose God and all who trust in him. And these fallen angels are sometimes called demons or, or evil spirits. And they are at work behind the scenes opposing God's people and opposing the gospel. So we need to be aware of this, that we are in a spiritual battle. Write this on your outline. It should be an outline you see. We are in a spiritual battle. And it's very easy for us in a materialistic, physical, Western setting here in the UK, where we perhaps don't really recognize this. But we need to face up to the fact that we're in a spiritual battle. And we need to be ready for opposition. We're in a spiritual battle. There are unseen demonic forces at work all the time opposing God and opposing the gospel. And we are the foot soldiers. C.S. Lewis wrote that uh, Satan uh, uh, fights for every inch, or this is a kind of paraphrase, but every inch of the universe. And we are kind of cosmic foot soldiers caught in this great battle. Now Satan has been defeated. Jesus disarmed him at the cross, but he fights on a bit like uh, uh, D-Day and V-E-Day. Hitler was defeated when the troops were ashore at D-Day, but it took another 18 months of fighting before finally victory was declared. Jesus has won the victory, but we're living in this in-between time before Jesus comes again. And we are, are in a situation where there is a spiritual battle, and we need to be ready for opposition. The Christians in Ephesus were facing the challenges of the occult. They were facing the challenges of a culture that was deeply ingrained in the worship of Artemis, both of which were demonically empowered. And today we will face all kinds of belief systems, ways of living, political systems, all of these things which are equally demonically empowered or, or can be. And when we are active in living for Jesus and spreading the gospel, then we're going to face opposition from all of these different things. We don't need to be scared. We don't need to be afraid because the Bible teaches us we have the Holy Spirit within us and he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. That's fantastic. And we have eternal life. But we do need to be prepared. We do need to be prepared. Persecution and opposition shouldn't catch us by surprise. We're in a spiritual battle for the souls of people. People's eternal destiny is at stake. And we have an enemy that wants to rob people. The, Jesus calls him a thief that comes to kill, steal and destroy. And that's our enemy. And he will use all kinds of methods he can to silence the gospel, prevent lost people being redeemed and saved and, 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 and going to heaven. He wants to trap them in all sorts of other ways of living, all sorts of belief systems that lead people away from God and away from the gospel. And sometimes those belief systems can be very close to the real thing. Subtly enough, different enough to lead people away from Jesus. But the great news is this, that the gospel will keep on growing. 
I don't want to be depressing. I don't want to send you home today depressed. The gospel will keep on growing. The kingdom parables that Jesus teaches in Matthew teach us that. That yes, there will be opposition right to the end, but yes, the church will keep growing. And the gospel will keep on being spread. Jesus and God's kingdom will keep on growing and the gospel will keep transforming lives. Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We will face demonically empowered persecution, opposition, and sometimes much more subtle opposition. But the gospel will keep on being proclaimed. The gospel will keep on growing and people will keep on trusting in Jesus and will keep on being added to God's family, the church. And the church will keep on growing. And then one day Jesus will return and he will rule and he will reign. And the Bible says that we will reign with him. That's a fantastic thing to look forward to, isn't it? We're caught in the middle. We're in between D-Day and VE Day. And in the middle, there's going to be some problems, and we're going to face some challenges, and we may face greater challenges in this country. So we need to be prepared for that and face up to it. But we are already winners. We're in the now and the not yet. We're looking forward to that day when Jesus will rule and reign, and all his enemies will be his footstool, and everybody will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, things turn very nasty in Ephesus for Paul and his team. Verse 29 says, The whole city was in uproar, and two of his team were seized and dragged into the arena, Gaius and Aristarchus. Here is a picture of the remains of that arena in Ephesus. This is where Paul, uh, this is where uh, uh, Aristarchus and Gaius would have been dragged into. This this arena could seat 25,000 people. And and Luke says the whole city was in uproar. So you can imagine a massive crowd here baying for blood for these two men. They didn't really know why they were there, Luke says, but, but they were there all the same. And Paul wanted to go into the arena. He wanted to make a defense for the gospel to explain to people what he was really on about. But his friends, he had friends in high places. We don't know if they were Christians or not, but these were uh, key people in the, in the kind of ruling authorities in, in Ephesus, and they persuaded him not to go in. And fortunately for Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus and the rest of the Christians in the city, the law came to their rescue. The city clerk, one of the most powerful men in the city, he took control of events. And, and look at verse 39. He says this, If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So Paul and his team were protected by the law, by the Roman law of the land. And they lived to fight another day. And we can learn a great deal from that, can't we? Because the law can also be a great friend to us. If we have good political leaders who make good laws, then we can live in peace and we can be free from official persecution. We might still face persecution from other people, but we can be free from official persecution and we can be free to keep on spreading the good news about Jesus. But if we have bad leaders who make bad laws, things can get very dangerous for us and many Christians live in that kind of situation around the world today. And I think over the last 20 years or so, we have seen and ever so subtle change to the political climate in this country from every political party. I'm not making party political points here. Every political party has done this. So that, as I said earlier, those who hold to biblical teaching on, on, on issues like abortion or, or same-sex marriage are being publicly, not just ridiculed, but viciously attacked by, by people in the media and by other politicians. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not giving any kind of support to one political party or another. But it seemed to me like the biggest sin in this last general election was to believe that abortion was wrong or that same-sex marriage was wrong. That seemed to be the worst crime that anybody could commit in this last election. And and the hatred and the vitriol that's been unleashed on people who who hold those positions who are in the public arena has been quite remarkable. 
we shouldn't be surprised, but it's, it, it's new, isn't it, for this country? It's something that we've not experienced before. And I think we'll see this happening more and more uh, so that those who seek to follow Jesus and, and, and hold some kind of public office will be silenced. That, that, that there's proposals to, for everybody who works in the public sector to swear an oath of allegiance. There's all sorts of issues in there about quite what, we're, what people will be swearing allegiance to and what that means and the implications for people. So that's why we need to pray for our politicians. We really need to pray for our politicians. Paul says this, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice that, that, that kind of final phrase, this is what matters more than anything else. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That ought to be our biggest goal, our focus as believers. So we need to pray for those in authority. Why? We want them to make good, you know, righteous laws and, and just laws so that there's social justice, so that the poor uh, have what they need and that people have what they need and that there's equality and there's justice in our nation. All of those things are important, obviously. But the thing that should matter to us more than anything else is gospel freedom. Because what should matter to us more than anything else is the gospel. We need to pray that we are preserved. And this is what Paul says. You pray for those in authority so that we have a peaceful life, so that we are still free to go on spreading the good news. That needs to be our focus. And we can hold differing views on, on, on a variety of political matters, and that's fine. We might have really strong feelings about some of those political issues, and that's fine. But the thing that should matter to us most is that our political leaders make laws that give us the freedom to keep on spreading the gospel. That should be our number one priority. So we need, to, we, we need to pray for the authorities. Write this down. We need to pray for the authorities so that we are free to preach the gospel. We need to be actively praying for our authorities. Can I challenge you this morning? Challenge myself. It's very easy, isn't it, to be critical of political leaders. I mean, who would be in politics? It doesn't matter what you do. You know, you're kind of uh, on a hiding to nothing. Anybody who tries to, to sort of serve, because there's always somebody who'll have a go at you for something. But we need to to pray for our political leaders. It's so easy to attack people in politics uh, or, or, or on any particular party. Easy to criticize, but how often do we pray for them? How often do we pray for them? And as a church, in our prayer meetings, you know, how much focus do we give on praying for those in authority? Do you pray for them to be saved? Do you pray for them to make wise laws and protect our freedoms to spread the gospel? There are a significant number of active, genuine Christians in Parliament trying to do their best, having to make all sorts of compromises, but trying to do their best to uh, put their faith into practice and, 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 and try and bring good government to this country. It was the law and it was political leaders in Ephesus that came to the rescue of Paul and his team. It was his friends in high places and it was the uh, city clerk. And they were able to shelter behind the benefits of the law, of, of, of Roman law. And we need to pray that our political leaders and the law of this land will similarly protect us and continue to give us that freedom to go out, as we've done in recent weeks on, in the turning, to go on the streets and, and, and go up and talk to people and not be arrested for doing that. Or to give out literature indoors and not be arrested for that. Or to be able to say things publicly and not be arrested. We need to pray for that continued protection. And as we do that, we need to be really careful, I think, how we talk about politics and about political leaders. Things like Facebook, things like Twitter can be great, but we need to be incredibly careful 
and wise about how we use them. And not just social media, but just as we talk to other people who might hold different views. Not so much in terms of the political content, although that is sometimes an issue, but more in terms of how we say things and in the manner in which it's said. You know, as followers of Jesus, the way we conduct ourselves ought to be different to the way the world conducts itself. There is some horrendous stuff on social media, and believers have no business retweeting stuff or or, or reposting stuff that is laced with hatred and vitriol and, and, and ungodliness. So we need to be really, really careful as believers that we don't get sucked into that. We can have a great impact and we should stand and, and we can post things and we can, you know, we, can, we can respond to things, but we just need to be really, really careful as we do that so that we don't get dra- dragged into some of the, the, the horrendous stuff that goes on online. So we need to think incredibly carefully before we retweet or before we post things online. And I guess what we should ask ourselves is this, is, and, and, and this is true in just in general conversation, isn't it? Before I press that button on the, on the computer or before I have that conversation or before I text my friend or whatever it might be, to, to ask ourselves, is this wise? Is this helpful? Does this glorify God? If it does, that's great. But if it doesn't, then we may be better off not getting involved and, and staying quiet. We need to ask ourselves whether our online behavior as well as our behavior in the real world, does that reflect well on Jesus? Does it reflect well on our membership of this church? You know, when you are out there at work or or, or online or with non-Christian friends and family, you're representing this church. You're representing Jesus. Paul says we are ambassadors, and ambassadors are there to represent well. Paul wrote these words. He said, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So I guess... some good questions to ask ourselves as we engage, and I think we should engage on social media. We should, Christians, we shouldn't retreat from that. We should be there. But before we get involved, we need to ask ourselves, is my online behavior, as well as my general behavior, but is my online behavior, is it respectful, as Paul says here, to everyone? Regardless of how they live, their beliefs, their race, their gender, their sexuality, whatever it is, is it respectful to everyone? Is it loving to other Christians? Does it demonstrate a fear and a respect for God? And do we honor our political leaders? I don't think we do, do we, in this country? We're a very cynical kind of culture, and I hold my hands up to that. We don't honor our political leaders, and it's difficult to show honor to people that we just really struggle to agree with some of the things that they do and say. But if our online behavior, as well as our general behavior, falls below this standard, then we're probably better off not being on social media or refraining from being active. One thing I was challenged by recently was this. Do I post as many Bible verses and gospel content online as I do other content? Would people know by the things I tweet, or I'm not on Facebook, but if I was posting things on Facebook, would they know I was a Christian living for Jesus? Or would they see me driven by other agendas and other issues? Does my my online profile, if someone looks at my profile, do they know first and foremost that I'm a follower of Jesus by my profile and by my online activity? And that overlaps into our real life living in, in the workplace, in our street, in our family? Does our behavior speak well of Jesus? Is our, is our lifestyle, is it honoring to God? Does it, um, does it reflect well on him? So we need to really pray for our political leaders, but we mustn't put our trust in them. Politics can change things, and politics has done some fantastic things over the years, and we look how Christians and non-Christians have engaged with great social justice issues, things like the slave trade, 
uh, things like the, the health service, some, some fantastic things that we're the benefit, beneficiaries of today because people, believers and unbelievers, engage with social justice issues and, and got involved with politics. But, you know, ultimately, politics will never deliver what this world needs. And politics is a tool, it's a means to an end, but it is not the end in itself. It's not politics that will transform this world. It's not politicians. It's the good news of Jesus. And as believers, we need to stay focused on that above anything else. Because no political leader can bring the transformation this world needs. But Jesus can. We need to pray for our political leaders and do what we can to try and influence and perhaps write letters and meet with them and, and, and so on and vote wisely. But it's the good news of Jesus that ultimately will transform this world. Politicians will come and go. The Bible says don't put your trust in princes, but trust in the Lord. So we need to stay focused on living for Jesus, on spreading that good news about Jesus so that many people then will accept the good news and trust in him. But we need to be real and accept the fact that many people will also oppose the good news. They'll oppose Jesus and they'll oppose us. So we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready for opposition. And that's where it's important to come together in, in home groups and, and, and in friendships to support one another so that when somebody is the, when you're the only Christian in your family or in your workplace, that there's, we can text each other and phone each other up and meet with each other and, and, and encourage one another as we struggle, perhaps being the only person in that environment. We need to be ready to face opposition, like Paul, like his team in Ephesus, because living for Jesus, spreading the gospel, is more important than anything else. Now, I don't normally quote politicians, but I thought the words of Tim Farron in his resignation speech were particularly powerful, and I'm going to close with this before I pray. And he, he, quote, he closed his speech, and if you haven't seen this online, some media outlets have cut down significantly what he actually said. I think with their own agendas. But go online and watch, if, if you get a chance on YouTube, and look for the, his full speech. It's about four, three, four minutes long. And listen to everything he said. But this is what, these are the words he closed with. He says, I love my party. Imagine how proud I am to lead my party. And then imagine what would lead me to voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, it would have to be something so amazing, so divine, it demands my heart, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus that transforms lives, it transforms cultures. Help us to be committed to that gospel, to living for you, Lord Jesus. Help us to be ready for the opposition that will come in all sorts of shapes and guises. Help us to be wise and to stand firm for the gospel, we pray. We pray that you would help us to be singularly devoted to the gospel and to the cause of Jesus. Father, we pray for our nation at this time. We're perplexed as we look over these last few weeks at so many uh, strange things, so many awful things. And we lift our nation to you this morning. And we pray for it. And we pray for politicians of all uh, colors and, and party allegiances. That, they will, uh, that you will help them, that they will have wisdom. We pray for, particularly for Christians who are active in politics, uh, as MPs and in different positions and, and, and of influence, and those in, in senior roles in the civil service and so on. We pray for them, Lord. Help them, protect them. Give them courage to take a stand for you, to live for you, in what must often be a very difficult environment. We pray for our leaders, be they Christian or not, that they would make good laws, 
righteous laws, laws of justice and righteousness and honesty and integrity. We also pray, Lord, for laws to be made in this land which protect gospel freedom. We pray, Lord, that you would protect our freedom to not only meet like this, but to uh, be public about the gospel, about our faith, to, sh- to have different views to other people, and to be able to proclaim them uh, publicly, we pray. Help us, protect us. Uh, we pray for those in authority that they would continue to protect those gospel freedoms. And help us, Father, to be wise as we interact around these issues, as we interact with people who think differently to us. Help us to be wise about what we say and how we behave and uh, how we live and how we function. We just pray ultimately and above all else that the gospel would go forwards. We pray, Lord, echoing the words of this speech, that we would be prepared to lay down those things which... Uh, cause conflict, those things which would drag us away from living for you. And if it means a choice between one and the other, then we would be prepared to make that ultimate choice. Even perhaps if that means losing our jobs, losing relationships, family members, that we would be prepared to lay down our lives and our agendas and our ambitions for Jesus. That the one who is so amazing, so divine, that his love would demand our life, our soul, our all. Help us to live that way, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to close by singing that hymn by Isaac Watts. Um, let's make this a prayer. And perhaps uh, just stand as, 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 as we sing this together. If you want to chat with me about anything I said this morning, I'd be more than delighted. Maybe not on Twitter, but uh, I'll be out there in the entrance hall. And I'm happy to chat with you about anything I said this morning. Thanks.